We have two Bible readings this morning. The first from Isaiah chapter 45. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come, assem and come assemble, you fugitives, from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry out idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from a distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you gods of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say to me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 3. Chapter three. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behaviour in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it, sorry. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Thank you, Bill, for that. Well, good, uh, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all awake and everything. That's so fantastic. So this morning, we're continuing the series that we've been looking at on questions of hope. 
Uh, and today we're looking, as we've heard already, can science and faith work together? Now, uh, when Paul gave me an option of all the different questions of hopes, uh, I, I picked this one. Uh, it was almost immediately of regret, the feeling that I had after picking this, um, because I'd forgotten just how poor I am at science. Um, thank you to Sue for, uh, for giving us that talk this morning. If you were like me, you were probably sat there thinking, I have no idea what any of those things are. Uh, I don't know what, what bond that is, or what element, or atom, or whatever. So that's, that's where I'm coming from this morning. Uh, so when I heard that Sue was taking the, uh, the science uh, all-age talk this morning, that even feel, made me feel a bit less qualified uh, so, to be talking to you on this topic. But, but nonetheless, I've, um, I've, I've, I've taken on the hat of a good scientist this morning, um, as any good scientist would. I've developed a hypothesis. I've uh, experimented by listening to different lectures and reading different articles. And this morning, I'm presenting my findings to you, and hopefully together, we can come to a conclusion. But I wanted to start this morning, uh, before I even go to any detail or findings, by saying that actually it's a myth that science and faith are at war with each other. Uh, and this is proved by the fact that we have scientists who have faith. Sue Taylor, for example, a perfect example today, uh, told us about her faith and what God has done for her. But then, looking deeper into the world of physics, as an example, um, we have across a spectrum of faith. Uh, just last year, the Nobel Prize uh, was won in physics jointly by a man uh, called Rainer Weiss and Barry Bearish, uh, who are both from a Jewish background. Then we also have, a few years back even more, was Bill Phillips, um, who did some work in laser cooling, and he won the Nobel Prize for that. Uh, he's a Christian. Um, but then you also look at other examples, and you get Peter Higgs, who was famous for uh, the Higgs boson, or it was, it was called the, the, the God particle. And basically, it was when studied, um, it, it gives us more of an idea of how the universe came into existence. But Higgs is actually an atheist. So uh, looking across all the, the realm of physics, there's scientists from across the spectrum of faith. Some do have faith, some don't. So the difference between these people uh, isn't their science. It's a worldview conflict. So the science and the faith bit aren't at war. What's, the, what's at war is their worldview conflicts. And, uh, and then you wouldn't have science, scientists who are Christians uh, if there was this war going on between faith and science, and especially those that are winning awards. But now we've got that bit out of the way, let's go back to a bit of history. We're going back to the 16th century, so the 1500s. And in the 1500s, most people were taught and most people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. And there was an astronomer called Galileo uh, whose studies building on that of Copernicus led him to say and believe that, that that wasn't the case. The Earth is not the center. Actually, the sun was the center, and all the other planets revolved around the sun. Now, the scientific community and the church at the time strongly, strongly had a big fight. Uh, they insist, the church insisted that the Earth was the center of the universe, and in fact, the Roman Catholic Church claims that the Bible actually taught that this was the issue. This was fact, that the Earth is the center. 
So they put Galileo on trial and forced him to recant of all his findings, and they kept him under house arrest for the final years of his life. Now, many non-Christians still refer to that moment in time uh, to demonstrate that religion and faith is opposed to science. And Galileo is, in a way, where this whole science versus God mentality started. Even today, people claim that the church and Christianity has halted development of science and technology. But actually, if we go back again, much of modern science as we know it began with Christians trying to bring glory to God. And moreover, um, theology, which is the study of God, uh, was known as the queen of sciences. So many scientists in modern periods weren't just Christians, they were actually priests, monks, clergymen. Just to put a few names out there, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, to name a few, uh, recorded saying that their very motivation for their scientific endeavor was to investigate the wonders of the world and, to by, and by doing that, bring glory to its maker. Even Nicholas Copernicus, who first brought about the idea that the, the sun wasn't the center of the universe uh, or the center of the galaxy, was actually a canon in the Roman Catholic Church. But we also need to understand that science is not very, actually by definition fact, and that scientists need just as much faith as Christians. Let me start out with a couple of examples. At the end of the 19th century, there was a guy called Lord Kelvin, a well-respected scientist. And he said this, he said, heavier than air machines, uh, sorry, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Later, two years later, in fact, the Wright brothers built and flew their first plane. A short time later, Lord Kelvin again said, radio has no future. X-rays are a hoax. Now, I don't want to ridicule this guy, uh, but, but you get my point. I mean, history is littered with rejected scientific theories and discredited sciences. So you can't ever say that science um, is fact because it's only one step away from being proved wrong. And this shouldn't be surprising if you understand the way that science works. Science, you see, is a process, not a series of facts. Uh, science is a process which falsifies but what it does do is it takes evidence and pointers and indicators, a bit like Sue was talking about this morning, and it comes up with a theory rather than proof. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now the view of Romans there is so is that the universe is so powerful that itself contributes, constitutes sorry, people as without ex excuse. But notice the way that Paul actually says in that writing that his invisible attributes are perceived. He doesn't say that they're proved. And the reason for that, of course, is that this word proof in English has a few different meanings. Um, and today I want to have a look at two of the meanings. Uh, there, there's something to mathematically prove something, and there's to scientifically prove something. And these two also actually get confused quite a bit. So there's a rigorous sense of proof that only exists in the field of pure mathematics. 
where a proof is actually a series of logical deductions from a set of accepted fields leading to a result based on that process. Now, you don't get that kind of proof in any other scientific, uh, any other science or any other part of life. But that doesn't mean that asking for science without reasonable, asking for evidence without reasonable doubt produces nothing. See, this morning, I can't prove to you that Jackie, who this October has been married to me for five years, loves me. I can't prove that to you, mathematically speaking. But I would stake my life on that because there's evidence for it. Scientific evidence is based upon repeated experimentation under controlled conditions. This means that asking someone to scientifically prove that Jesus rose from the dead, for instance, is complete nonsense. You can't repeat historical events under controlled conditions. But there are other ways of proving things. In a murder case, Court, in court, for example, we don't ask the murder to be repeated over and over again for us so that we can observe, record, and conclude. You can, you can imagine the judge going, I'm sorry, can you, can you just stab him in the chest a few more times so that, that I can write down my data and examine it and all that sort of thing? Uh, you, you don't get that. But what we do get is we look at evidence and we hear testimony. So science, therefore, can't prove or disprove Christianity because the Bible makes claims which fall far outside of scientific inquiry. If you ask a how question, then science is usually ready and very uh, can confidently supply the answer. But it struggles with the why questions. Why does the universe work this way? Why are we here? Let me just illustrate on this point, for example. A young boy walks into the kitchen and finding a kettle boiling, says to his father, who's a scientist, Dad, why is that kettle boiling? And his, the father responds, Well, son, it's because the combustion of the gas transfers heat to the bottom of the kettle, which, being a good conductor, transfers heat to the water. The molecules of the water become more agitated and give off steam, and there is your boiling. Slightly dissatisfied, the boy then asks his mother, to which she replies, the kettle's boiling because I want a cup of tea. <laughs> so science and faith aren't fundamentally contradictory because actually they seek to answer different questions. Science can't really give us meaning or purpose. It can't tell us about relationships or emotions. It can't tell us how we should treat others. It can't tell us who made us. If science is all there is, then it's pretty depressing because we here are no more than just a bunch of cells, a mutilated fluke of evolution. But then we have others who, across the board, say, actually, our God, the one we believe in and we put our lives down for, is just a God of the gaps. Anything science can't yet explain. And Christians use God to fill those gaps. Just like how the ancient uh, Greeks would have said last night that God, uh, the god Zeus was in full action. God, the god Zeus being the god of thunder. Because the ancient Greeks, they didn't understand or know how thunder came about. So they attributed that to a god. But 
the people who use that idea and argument that God is just a God of the gaps, they, don't re- they can't see the difference between our gods and the gods of the near, um, near East, the ancient Near East, uh, who were actually descended from the heavens and from the earth. But the God of the Bible created the heavens and the earth. And that puts our gods in a completely different category. See, if you think that God is just an explanation for what we can't yet scientifically explain, then you have to, as the late Stephen Hawking said, choose, make a choice between God and science. Because that's the way that you've defined God. It's a profound confusion about the nature of God that's causing this difficulty for so many people. So we have the task today of explaining that the God of the Bible is not just a God of the gaps. He's the God of the whole show, the bits we do understand and the bits we don't. When you think of Isaac Newton, when he got his law of gravity, he didn't say, I've got a law of gravity now, I don't need God anymore. No, he wrote a book in which he expressed the hope that it would help a thinking person believe in a deity. In other words, the more he understood of the universe, the more he worshipped the gods who did it that way. And that's simple logic. You see, the more I understand of engineering, the more I can admire and appreciate a space shuttle. The more I understand of art, the more I can understand of the genius behind a Rembrandt. The more I understand of the universe, the more I can admire the God that chose to do it that way. Our reading, for example, this morning in Isaiah said, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God's. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. God created the heavens. He planned each part He was before anything else. And this is where people like Richard Dawkins take an issue. See, in the book, The God's Illusion, Dawkins says that we have a right to ask, if God created the universe, then who created God? Now, I want to encourage you this morning, if you haven't seen the film God's Not Dead, uh, to go and watch it. But the summary of the film is basically, uh, it's about a philosophy student who, when attending his first lecture at his university, is told by his professor that all students must sign a a statement declaring that God is dead uh, in order to pass and skip their first module. But a Christian student refuses to do so. Uh, And then the professor challenges him to defend his position. And it's a whole whole film about him defending this position. It's a really great film if you wanted to go and watch it. But Dawkins' question, if God created the universe, who created God, is asked in the film. And the response was this. Uh, It says, Dawkins' question only makes sense in terms of a God who has been created. It doesn't make sense in terms of an uncreated God which is the kind of God that Christians believe in. And even leaving God out of the equation, then I have the right to turn Mr. Dawkins' own question back round on him and asks, if the universe created you, then who created the universe? In response to the God delusion, a senior uh, senior fellow in the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture named David Belinsky uh, who's actually an agnostic and a skeptic, wrote a book called The The Devil Delusion. 
And this is what he wrote in the main flap of the book. He said, has anyone, proved, uh, has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why the universe seems to be so fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt, dead on. So, in the words of an agnostic and a skeptic, using science to try and support or justify atheism is just ridiculous. It has no intellectual background whatsoever. So the writings of Dawkins, and especially in his book, The God's Illusions, is just pointless. But the importance the important thing that we, I want you to take away this morning is actually not science versus faith. Can they work together? But really, it's about people. In the reading we had in Isaiah earlier, we heard how God spoke, to the, spoke the universe and everything in it into creation. But he didn't just leave the earth there. He said, uh, towards the end of the same passage from verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. God wants us to find our fullness of life in him, and he wants that for all people on earth. So how then do we respond when we're faced with those questions of science and of God? Those questions that have actually stopped people from coming to full knowledge and relationship with Jesus. The second passage Bill read out said, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you and against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now I feel that actually this passage speaks like those, to those people like Richard Dawkins, who a couple of years ago at a rally said that atheists should mock religious people. And here it is, thousands of years before written, that those who speak maliciously against you and good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. We need to have a reason for our hope. We need to give the reason that we love and um, are amazed by God. But the gospel has power. The good news in your own life has strength. Personal testimony is amazing. So stand firm with the reason that you have for your hope in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his 
appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. So when it comes to arguing with these people about creation, evolution, the Big Bang, or whatever, we need to realize that actually our fight isn't with those things. Our fight is with sin and with the devil. We need to overcome those things, not scientific theories. We need to know your stuff to be able to give answers for sure. But actually the gospel is the thing that has the power for salvation. And whatever arguments for God's creative work that you use, they're only useful if they point to Jesus, glorifying the Father who sent him, and challenge people to put their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. So this has been my hypothesis that actually science and faith work together. We've experienced and seen different ways in which science and faith do work together through the historical reasons of actually science was there to bring about glory to the maker. We've looked at people who still have faith in the sciences. Then we've looked at actually science and faith ask and answer different questions. So they work together seeking to find different answers. But the main point is people. It's not science. So let's stand firm in our faith. Let's pray to the gods we believe in for wisdom. But then let's speak into other people's lives. Let's be a force for Christ in our world today, the world that is struggling with these questions. And let's continue to have faith in our maker. Let's pray. So Lord God, we thank you for the work of the early scientists and how they developed their ideas to bring you glory. And Lord God, some of us here today are scientists and some aren't. But Lord God, that's okay because you make each and every one of us different and we all have different uh, talents and knowledge and wisdom, Lord God. But we pray that when we, account, when we uh, encounter those people that do have those questions, may we be prepared to give them the answers they're seeking. Lord God, we know you because of your words, because of your acts in our lives. So Lord God, help us to be prepared with our testimonies. Help us to have the power to speak those testimonies. And Lord God, today we pray that you will show us who needs to hear those testimonies. Show us, we all know people in our lives, Lord God, who struggle with these things. So we pray that you will give us the confidence and courage to go and speak into the hearts of these people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.